When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello. Did you ring them? Hello, hello, hello. Did you ring them? No, I'm up here in the dark talking to Ronan and trying to get the dinner ready. <laughs> That's me going round with the phone in one hand and the candle in the other. Steve's in South Donegal and the electricity's gone. No, OK. Talk to you later, so. Bye-bye. No. Ashton's going to give him a buzz. Okay. But she has to find the electricity bill first. He's used to this because in his job, well, in one of his jobs, he works in the dark. This is the Ulster American Folk Park. Steve's sitting on a three-legged stool in a peasant's cottage from the 1840s. You can see up to the dark thatch of the roof and the floor is dirt and the only light is from the turf fire. There are no electrical conveniences in the cottage, obviously, except hidden in the thatch is a CD player and hidden in Steve's pocket, a remote control. How are you folks? Fine. 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 Just want to hear a story? Yes. Okay. I'm scared. Yeah, well, all right, well, there's somebody scared at the back, so we'll tell a nice wee story. No. Yeah? No. Yeah, we'll tell... Do you want a scary story? Yes! Let's see. You know these houses here were brought from somewhere else. This one was brought from the Sperrin Mountains behind us, and it was rebuilt here. And it was empty up in the Sperrin Mountains. And do you know why it was empty? Who said that? Me. Well, you're nearly right. And I'll tell you, there was a family lived in this one time. There was a man and his wife and six children. And they were very poor, very hard up. And the woman of the house made money by spinning. And you'll see a spinning wheel later on in the tour. And she made money by spinning wool for the weaver. And she'd spin late at night after she'd all her work done. She'd sit by the fire with a spinning wheel and it clacking and her spinning wool on wool. And it was very hard. Everybody else worked. The father was asleep in the bed with a wee baby. And she had three or four big sons asleep on a pallet bed in the corner. And she was working with just the candle. And it was a bad, dark night. And what did she hear? A knock at the door. So she opened the door and what was that? I'm Steve Minari, born and brought up in Manchester, currently resident in Clockbilly, South Donegal, just outside Ballyshannon, on the Atlantic coast, just between, for those that know it, between Rossnower and Ballyshannon, just up from Creevy Pier. So she opened the door, and what was outside the door? An old woman with a cloak on, and under her arm a spinning wheel, 
and it lashing rain. Come in, come in, she says. So the old woman came in, and there came her two sisters along with her, all of them dripping wet and with spinning wheels. And she says, it's a terrible night to be out. And they said, we heard you were stuck for wool, she says. We've come here to spin and help you make a few bob. And they set up the three spinning wheels along with hers, and they started spinning. And as they got warm, they took off the cloaks, and these people were wearing funny clothes. They had long, long, straggly hair, and old grey things that went right down to their ankles and down to their arms, and there was a bit of a smell off them. But they could spin, and their wheels went clackety-clackety-clackety-clack. And the woman of the house said, this is great. So she made them tea, and they kept going and going and going. And she says, I'll wake the husband now and get him to go for water, because they'll want more tea. She went over and she shook him, and he wouldn't wake up. He just flopped about. She tried to wake some of the children. They wouldn't wake up. And she thought, if I get out to go to the well, I can run for help, because she recognised these weren't good. So she says, I'll go for water. And one of them looked at her, and she says, before you go, she says, Go you nowhere else to the well and straight back here, she says, because you see them children asleep in the bed there. For every minute you're late getting back here, she says, we'll stop the breath in one of them children and they'll die. And then she realised, who were these old women? Did you ever hear of the Banshee? Was the Banshee sisters, the three of them. Is your accent a Lancashire accent? Not really, no. My kid sister talks like they do on Coronation Street. Right. Like I say, people ask what she like, and I said, you know that Vera Duckworth? She's like that only without the charm and the good looks. <laughs> you don't say that. Yeah, I do, yeah. Do you say it in her hearing? Oh, I would. I tell her to her. Yeah. Do you get a whack in the head for it? No, no, she's used to it. I'm going here. And where is your accent from? It's from Manchester, but because they travelled around so much. And she says, what am I going to do? She went out to the well just at the back of the house here, and it was a holy well. And she was sat down by the well crying, what'll I do, what'll I do? And this voice says, what's the matter? And it was the water in the well talking to her. She says, what's the matter? She, she told her the story. She says, that's right. She says, the Banshee sisters are in your house and you invited them in and you'll never get them out unless they go on their own. And they're not going to go. They'll go in there and they'll kill the children one by one and eat them. And then the f- husband and then you. What am I to do, says the woman? Draw you, says the well, a bucket of me, me, the water out of the well, and take, and I'll help you. So she filled the bucket and she was going back. And the, the, the water said to her, have you salt in the house? And the woman says, we have a bit. Good, she says. Stop here now at this holly bush, she says, and break off a big branch. And she says, when you get in the house, she says, put down the bucket of water and the holly branch. And he says... And you tell them that you've seen the Sperrin Mountains behind us where this house was. You've seen the Sperrins are on fire. So she went in and she says, I make you tea now, ladies. She says, but this now I have to tell you, she says, I just looked up and she says, the whole Sperrin Mountains are on fire. And that's where the Banshees lived in the cave. So next thing, they all ran out of the door to see about the houses being on fire where they lived up in the mountains. So the woman slammed the door and the husband and everybody woke up then. What was going on? She told them the whole story. And with that, what happened? She could hear the wailing and the screeching outside. I work in here. And you've arrived at the blacksmith board. And what do you see? You have to pretend now that this is 7 o'clock in the morning. And the, the blacksmith's just getting his fire going. Now, so the blacksmith is out and he brings in a few... It's a turf from the fire. 
we start the bell, that's the bell. That's how the blacksmith lights his fire in the morning. A few turf from the house, we shovel full of fresh coal, and we start pumping away with the bellows. That's the bellows in the corner here. And it blows air through a small pipe under the fire and lights it up. She could hear the wailing and the screeching outside. The banshees were coming down from the mountain because they knew they'd been tricked and were going to try and force the way back in. What'll I do? What'll I do? She says to the water. Wait, wait, says the water in the bucket. Wait. And the banshees, they went up like they do up onto the roof. And they start to come down the chimney. And the water says, quick, quick, throw salt on the fire. And she threw salt on the fire. And a big cloud of smoke went up. And the banshees were driven away. Next thing, they're rattling at the door, trying to force the door open. She says, quick, says the water, get the holly branch. And bar the door with the holly branch. Stop them getting in. So that was fine. Next thing, because you know the banshees can change and alter the shape. She saw something starting to come up under the door the hand of the banshee, and it was going to come in. And the water says, quick, she says, tip me under the door. So she threw the water under the door, and the banshees screeched and left, went away, they were driven away. But ever after that, they used to come back, they knew they couldn't get in, but they'd come back, and they used to sit up on the roof, and they'd howl down the chimney, just to remind the old woman that they were there, and they'd get her eventually. And it was that bad that it drove the whole family away, and ever after that, a family had come in and they'd settle in this house and they'd be sitting here like this at night. And every now and then they'd hear the banshees wailing up on the ceiling, up in the chimney. Are they coming down? No, eh? really. Okay, folks, that's it. Where you go. You're welcome. No. Of course it's a real story. You never see the banshees. Go on. And you see the smith wanted the fire going. Put a bit of metal in the fire, be pulling it out to look at the temperature because in the times we were set, 1840, 1845, the only way we had a judge in the temperature was by the colour of the metal which is why the forge is dark, because if you take it to different light settings, it looks a different colour, different temperature. And you've all probably heard the saying, strike while the iron's hot. This is where it comes from. The blacksmith gets his metal hot enough, out, brings it out of the fire to the anvil here, and gets his hammer and what other tools he's got, and starts shaping it into whatever he needs. I did an apprenticeship with a, in the Royal Navy back in the 60s, and we did two weeks of this. We made tools and industrial stuff, springs, catches, all that kind of stuff, as an engine room artificer, right? And if you go back to Shakespeare, he talks about a lean and grizzled artificer.
went down to Cornwall for a year, started the apprenticeship, and then off to Scotland for two and a half years. And as I see, the most miserable two and a half years of my life were in Scotland. Tell me about it. What happened? Well, I remember one time we were out, and we would have been like 18 or 19 at the time, and I can remember some Scots guy deliberately picking a fight with one of our friends and coming off worst and, and cutting his ear and having a lot of blood running down and then asking him for 10 bob, in those days 50 pence, and he says, what for? He says, I need a taxi to go to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> You're making that up. No, not at all. I never made a thing up in my life. Ask Eileen, she'll tell you. You know, like Jacques Cousteau was all the rage in those days, just starting off. You know, it was not a lot of people did it. There was something different. He something was the new. TV naturalist, wasn't he? he was, then? Yeah, co-inventor of the Aqualung. So I went to join as a diver, but the recruiting people in Manchester says, oh, sit down and do this test now, and you'd be better doing engineering. You can do the diving anyway. And then after that, I went to sea, went around the world. Japan, Burma, Australia, Hong Kong. Uh, we were in Hong Kong and we were out for a few drinks in the evening. We had something to eat and we were just going down the street and we heard coming down this stairwell somebody in English shouting, let go, let go, leave me alone, stop it, get up. You know, obviously in some distress. And it was obviously not a Chinese person that was in distress and we thought there was four of us and we thought maybe we'd better go and see what was happening. So we ran up the stairs and it was coming out of this door and very agitated, shouting, and we burst in through this door, and there was a fella there getting a fly tattooed on the end of his penis, and <laughs> being held down by four of his friends. <laughs> and when the smith has it shaped to his requirements, it goes in the water trough. You can hear it there. The local name for that round here is the fizz trough, because it fizzes when it cools the metal. And that's how quick it cools down. Okay, and the water for that trough now that the metal's been cooled in it has the cure for warts. Okay. <laughs> Back the times we're set here. There's, there's a gentleman there laughing. Look. Okay. Do you see a wart? <laughs> right. <laughs> you dip it in the water, and in one week it's gone. And we still get people coming okay. here for that cure. Okay. Were you ever in any scary or dangerous or tense situations? We were in was Bangladesh now, East Pakistan, then in Chittagong in 1970. There was a, you know, the tsunami we had lately. There'd been another tidal wave in 1970. We were there doing relief work in the Ganges Delta, a lot of the low-lying islands had been just completely swept from one side to the other by the tidal wave. What was your job as, as relief work? About eight of us. There was a ship in the middle of the Ganges Delta, there was anchored full of relief supplies and the crew wouldn't sail it because they'd heard there was cholera on board. At this point, the river was maybe two miles wide and uh, they'd heard there was cholera or smallpox, or, you know, these rumours fly out and they weren't going to move the ship. So they said they flew us out by helicopter and boat. Uh, there's a couple of seamen, a navigating officer, a couple of engineers out to see could we get this boat going and bring it ashore. And there was a crew... <laughs> what? turned out to be quite nice people but appeared to be cutthroats to us of maybe 20 people there and we landed with the six or eight of us and two Indian army personnel a sergeant and a corporal and we tried to get the boat going as soon as we went down below to get the engine started 
they cut the power, they took the generator, cut the power, left us in darkness, etc. And we said, you know, the, the officer in charge, he says, this can't go on. So we called the sergeant over and he says, look, we can't operate with these people here. And he says, leave it to me, Saab, you know, the Poker West Bengal sergeant. He, and he, he called the whole crew out and he got them in a whole line with the captain at the front all the way down to the cabin boy. And he called the captain over and he gave him an explanation. He says, I'm telling these people that you're here to help and they have supplies and please bring them ashore. You know, and the captain said, no, no, there's cholera, there's disease, we're afraid to go. You know, and so he said, Are you, you're not going to help us? And he said, no, he said, we're not going to help you. He said, okay, he said, overboard, you know. So the guy was obviously demurring from this and saying, I'm not going, I'm not going. So he had a word with his corporal who cocked a rifle and pointed it at him and he said, overboard. You know, so your man went to the edge of the boat and looked and the shore, we're in the middle of the Ganges, it was a mile to the shore at least. Then he came back and he says, okay, we'll help, he said. <laughs> so <laughs> discretion got was the better part of valour in that case, so it was all sorted and we all worked together for the next couple of days. Where did you meet Eileen? Uh, I didn't think you'd ask this. I really didn't think, you know. She'll kill me if this gets out on the radio, right? Do you remember there used to be a, a, a magazine in England came out every week called Weekend? They did a thing one time with pen pals for the people in the services. So I filled out the little tear-off form and I wrote across the top of it, somebody in Manchester, please. And Eileen and a friend of hers had actually sent in something and I got her one and we wrote for a while and then I actually met her which I think is not something she wanted to do at the time what did she want well she didn't want to meet me anyway but she kept writing to you oh yeah we wrote but then you know I was home on leave and you know I just says well we'll have to meet now you know so we did and but she wasn't writing looking for a husband was she no god no (laughs) sure I was 19 and she was 18 you know, right. yeah. so she was writing just to support people who were away and lonely and all that. Just thought it was a good idea, you know, good Christian thing to do. You do you remember your first letter? I remember the first one I got off her telling me that she was a Roman Catholic and she was five foot and half an inch, and the half an inch was very important. <laughs> but I can't remember much else of it. So where did you meet when you we when met you in Piccadilly in Manchester? Was she with a friend? No, she was she was on her own. Brave girl. Oh, no, she probably thought, you know, if if he, this boy turns out to be as bad as he might be, I don't want anyone to see, you know. What, like ugly or... Oh, yeah, you know. Bad manners. You know, because it's easy, as we see on the internet now, it's easy to change, right. you know. What are you like? And if you're writing it down, I'm handsome, I'm good, I actually am, but, you know, this is... The next time we went out, we went to Blackpool to the Illuminations on tr- the train, so we got to Blackpool and... Uh, I said to the guy in the station, I said, listen, I said, what time's the last train back to Manchester? Because we didn't want to miss the last train back to Manchester, you see. And he says, it's the one you've just got off. He says, and it leaves in 25 minutes or something like that. So we had a chance just to leg it down from the, the station to the front of Blackpool, look left and right at the lights and go back up to the station and get back on the train we just got off and go back to Manchester. That was a great day. Well done. Oh, it was, yeah. Wonderful, <laughs> yeah. And I still, I paid for a ticket and she said the time she'd pay for, she'd give me the money for her ticket, but I'm still waiting for it. So, You'll get a chance. Oh, well, I, no, no, I think if anyone owes anybody anything, 
I owe her. Why? Ah, she, well, she's the brains of the outfit. Eileen and Steve eventually got married. He left the Navy and the outfit headed off to Zambia where he worked in the copper mines. I can remember us, we were talked to by the personnel guy who was a, the mine who was the Zambian guy. And he says, you know, second day we were there, told us all this, that and the other, you know, welcome to my country. And he says, the first thing you need to do is take on a few servants around the house. And the concept to working class people, mostly from the north of England and Scotland, to take on servants. You know, our vision of a servant was totally alien, you know. And he'd obviously see, we all said, what? But he also, you know, he'd obviously seen it before. And he says, look at he says, in our country, he says, you're here, you're being well paid. He says, in our country, there's no social services, nothing like that. He says, you don't work, you don't eat. He says, so you're doing very well by our standards and we're glad to have you here, which is why we're paying you so well. But it's your duty to spread it around, you know. And he says, for a small amount that there's virtually nothing to you, he says, you be people will be coming, happy to come and work for you six days a week because it means they can feed themselves and their family. Steve's own family grew by one in Zambia with the birth of his son, Michael. Himself and Eileen decided to return to England and she supported him by working as a nurse while he went to college. And in college, he studied what he'd been doing all along in the Navy. Mechanical engineering. <laughs> sure, you could have taught the bloody course at that stage. Oh, well, you did find that in certain aspects you would know more than some of the people. You know, you wouldn't know the whole of the calculus behind Bernoulli's theorem, but you would know how an inductor worked, which works on Bernoulli's theorem. But they would never have heard of one. they say, what? You know, because some people went to school, went to university, stayed on to do a master's or a PhD, and then stayed on to lecture, became professors, and never actually having left the education system. So college was over. Got the degree, graduated, packed all up and came over to Ireland. Oh, why, why did you decide that? Well, Eileen was from Ireland and it, it, we decided it was a good place to rear children. We'd been over on holiday and I'd seen it and I really liked where we live in Donegal, you know. And we said, well, sure, we'll come home. So I, I looked for work and lucky enough, I had a few interviews before I finished college and got the offer of a couple of jobs in Ireland. So, And I think Eileen found it a lot tougher than me coming over here because I was expecting it to be different, whereas Eileen was going back to where she came from after being away for quite a long time and things were changed and she said she found the first two years very tough. But Like what? What kind of things? I Just the, the uh, maybe the social isolation or whatever you want to be in at home with a, an elderly parent and a small child because we lived with Eileen's father for a, a couple of years where we built the house, you know, but I think it was the day we both agreed that looking back and it was the right decision. He doesn't say it readily, but for Steve, the move to Ireland was a difficult decision too. While for everyone else in South Donegal and Sligo, he was Steve Manari. For his elderly father-in-law, the man sitting by the fire in his house, he was that man, the much disapproved of Protestant sailor that his daughter had married. This is the garage of the house that Steve built in Donegal. That's a log basket. And in it is material for making baskets, which Steve does. Brown willow with the, the red. This, this red band here is uh, Brittany red. 
most of the willow you get goes brown when it dries. He actually took it up as therapy to deal with the stress of working as a plant manager in a factory. And then there's different types of square ones. We were going to work one day and I was reportedly, according to Eileen anyway, in bad humour. And uh, she says, what's the matter with you? You're very snappy. And I says, oh, bloody work or something like that, you know. And she says, you're stressed out, go down to the doctor. So I went down to the doctor and I never went back to work since. He took the blood pressure, he says, you raged blood pressure. He chatted me for half an hour, he says, that's work. There's this note, send it into them. Why couldn't you just adjust the work or change the way you operated the work or something like that? didn't work like that. I was the engineering manager. I was the only engineer in the company. Did all the project work, supervised all the craftsmen, all the health and safety and environmental as well. The, the big thing that woke me up to it is I got a call from Fiona, the secretary, the, next, the day after I left. I, I was put on the sick on the Friday. The Monday Fiona rang to see how I was and she says, you know how many people are doing your job now? And I said, no, she says, there's four of them in your office. Three Americans and a consultant from Dublin. So I, I, I never went back after that. How's your blood pressure now? It's great. Is it? It's fine. This is the Sligo Presbyterian Church Hall. So this is where we do some of our work. I talked to the HR people and they said they talked to the Americans about giving me a package. Well, what we're doing in here, we're just cleaning up in here today. We've done, all the, done a lot of outside work lately, cutting bushes and stuff like that. And that was all sorted out and I left. And then I was looking around for something. I got this job with the probation service two days a week. I'm the community service supervisor and I supervise the people that get community service, which is a... Uh, they get it instead of being sent to jail. You get the, you can if you're judged suitable, you can get so many hours community service. What about the kind of uh, standard of people that you get in terms of their skills? It, it varies a lot. Some people come already skilled, especially the more mature people. But you usually find that uh, people in the late teens, early twenties have no real practical skills at all, because especially in lots of things nowadays. Even youngsters playing and making things this doesn't happen that often. So even the, the fact that hand and eye coordination wouldn't be great with some people. This is MCR Community Centre. This is one of the jobs we did put in this gate. And are there too many individuals for you to say, this is how I feel about people who do community service? Or do you, have a, do you feel sorry for them? Do you think their lives are chaotic? Do you think no, because chances? again, it's, it's like... You're going to a ward in the hospital and there's six fellas laid there with broken legs. They all got the broken legs for different causes and different <laughs> reasons. And quite often the reasons people have arrived at community service are, are vastly different. This is the upstairs in the MCR. We have a couple of rooms here with a computer room. Built a little office there. So our next job is we have to come and take all the insides out of that. Put in workstations for the computers. The electricity still isn't on, and Steve is in the kitchen with his wife Eileen. His adult son John and John's wife Ashling, and their two children, Chloe and Cahill. Hello, I'm Chloe Mummy. Steve's breaking crab claws. They were caught earlier by John. We call them crab's toes. They yeah. call them claws in the, in the, in the best places. In the real world. In the posh places. Yeah. Boys, you wee. Look, Carl. Bye-bye. 
So there's Steve with three jobs. Basket weaving, working in the folk park and supervising people doing community service. His son John, though, may soon have a fourth job for Steve. He's going to get a boat of his own shortly. He's got an elderly gentleman, otherwise known as his father, who's going to crew him when Daisy's not working. So we'll see how that works out. It might work well. And the only drawback I can see is the fact that the skipper's always right. And that goes against the natural course of things. So. And in what's left of the day, there's always poetry, particularly the comic Australian poet, Dennis Kevins. Jesus saves. How's that? Religion has its benefits, arousing wits and sages. Jesus saves and underneath he couldn't on my wages. <laughs> and there's another one. I am the poet lorikeet, I wrote this very fast. You are a beaut, I thee salute Elizabeth the last. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.